Hi all, from an eerily warm November. This past week has seen the trees finally shed their leaves and temperatures setting in the high teens. Both are strong indicators that something is very unusual with our climate. That the changes people once thought of as distant are occurring right now and closer to home than you might expect. COP27 continues till the end of the week in Egypt. Amid many long speeches by politicians saying all the right things, little has lived up to the real action we require. Guardian journalist and climate activist George Monbiot holds the heads of state at the talks in very low regard. Well, I just don't think they're serious. I really don't think they're serious. You know, the, the powerful governments, they nod and smile and say the right things and then they do nothing. And I mean, they're not even prepared to pay the money that they've promised to the poorer nations, uh, let alone go beyond that and actually take the action that's needed. It's all lies. That's how I see it. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, I, I, I want to believe in it. But this process has been going on since 1972, and it has achieved almost nothing. And that's not an accident. That's because the power of industrial lobbyists seems to be greater than the power of our demands for a habitable planet. So, where does this leave us? Those people most passionate and most affected by the climate crisis are on the margins of COP27. Just stop oil protests have shut down motorways, thrown food at artwork and spray-painted buildings. Many of these actions were reported as a nuisance. But, and this is important, their purpose was to highlight a scientific fact, that we must stop the extraction and use of fossil fuels. And that's why the action really is with the climate movements, with the activists, because it's not governments who are going to deliver until governments are forced to deliver. You know, change never happens from the centre, it always comes from the margins. And the people who are often reviled by the media, the direct activists demanding the habitable planet, in the future they will be seen as heroes, just as the suffragettes are, just, just as civil rights activists are. Well, it's Science Week here in Ireland. So what better chance to celebrate and discuss all the amazing things we can achieve through scientific research and positive action? Time and time again, the findings of climatologists, marine biologists and others telling us how the climate crisis is unfolding are ignored or passed off as overly pessimistic. But if the world's experts are starting to take part in civil protests to get leaders to sit up, we really need to listen. So today we're going to talk about why science matters with actual real-life scientists. Because who better to come up with decent answers to the big questions? Scientists love coming up with solutions, and we pose some tricky ones. First up, some familiar voices on RT Junior, Phil Smith and Julie Gold. Now, people who are listening know what you're listening to, but we're, we're here unexpectedly. We are. We're originally from Let's Dive In, but we are super excited to answer some questions for Ecolution, which we've been sent, and we're going to have a go at answering those now. So, Phil, are you ready for question number one? Is, this, is the first question, are we famous now because we're guesting on another podcast? No, but the answer is yes, of course, but no. Super. Great. Okay, <laughs> All right, right, here we go. Fir- I'm actually ready for the first question now. Yes. Cool. What is your favourite example of a time when scientists found a solution to a problem that was proving a serious threat to humanity? Ooh, Oh, well, we opened the envelope and opened a can of worms. I suppose with ecolution, like I do think of like big things, like obviously like climate and weather and solutions. But I also think of like physical things like the Thames barrier in London, like a mechanical solution to flooding or there's the great 
cheese and onion crisp shortage that happened in 2003. Uh, Definitely what, what a massive you, crisis to humanity. Threat, threat to humanity there. <laughs> Anything spring to mind for you? Um, well, my actually, my mind first went to um, disease. So how do you prevent diseases from spreading? You know, we've had things like the bubonic plague many years ago and, and COVID-19 more recently that were both, you know, wiped out thousands, hundreds, sometimes even millions of people. So that I, I think that comes under a serious threat to humanity too. Yeah. My one was the first use of kind of data analytics. So when cholera was around, so there's a guy called Jon Snow, who's the same name as the main character in Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. And in that, he, they say, you know nothing, Jon Snow. But this Jon Snow is different because what he did was they thought that collar was a miasma it was in the air and it was coming from the river but he didn't believe it and he used he mapped out all the incidents of where collar was happening and found that in the middle in a central point there was a well he said this could be the well and no one believed him but he used the data eventually to prove that it was that there was a septic tank linking into where people were getting their drinking water so they were drinking pee and poop and getting sick and he was vilified oftentimes, but in the end, the data proved it. So, yes, scientists saving humanity from cholera. I, that's John Snow. And data science. And actually, that data. brings me to my favourite one as well that I heard about only quite recently. There was a, a mathematician in the early 1900s called Lewis Fry Richardson. So he was given the job to try and predict the weather a few days ahead. So before World War I, people could predict the weather, but only for the day that they were in. So they could say at like nine o'clock in the morning, they could tell you what the weather would be at six o'clock in the evening, but not much further than that. What Lewis Fry Richardson did was he looked backwards at data from years and years before and tried to find patterns in the weather data to see whether he could use those to predict the weather in the future. So yeah, data science to the rescue. So given that scientists have a proven track record of getting things right and admitting when they get things wrong, it's never been more important to trust them. But Dr Shane McGuinness, our chief boffin, can see that there is a gap between the scientists and the general public. So we need to listen to scientists because they haven't been listened to for so long. Scientists are often very bad at communicating the knowledge that they have. But I think we need to become a little bit better at that because there's so much information out there that has been around for decades now, indicating that there is a big change coming. And I guess we haven't been good enough at telling that story. So now I think the public and young people and old people alike now understand that it's science that's going to help us get out of the problem that we're in. Like when you're asking people for advice or on anything, you like to go to a person who's either experienced it or knows what they're talking about and, and you know, has has an idea of that thing that you're looking for advice on. And I think scientists have that. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, why is it so important? I mean, to me, it's like, why wouldn't you be asking the experts? They're experts. They work in the field. They do it every day. And it's not that they all think one way. There should be like differences of challenges to to check data to make sure and make sure there's not just one scientist you're listening to, even though like she might be or they might be the greatest scientist in the world. There's always things to be challenged. But it's also scientists aren't just about presenting data. They often present solutions. So it's not just about listening to what they say is happening, but what they're saying that we can do and what we can move into the future because... Like, it is the future that we're trying to protect here, like. Dr Neve Shaw is an Irish engineer, scientist, writer and performer. And for the longest time, it's been her dream to go into space. Because when humans first ventured off planet, it signalled a change for many in how we looked at the Earth. 
I always think of the first time we saw the Earth in its entirety, which was on Christmas Eve 1968. And it was a picture called Earthrise. And it was it was the Earth lit by the sun. The other half was in shadow. And it was taken as part of the mission to finally get our two humans to land on the moon the following summer. And it was the first time the world saw the Earth in its entirety. And it kicked off the whole environmental movement. For some reason, when people saw that, they saw how fragile the Earth is. We'd never seen the film of, of this very thin atmosphere that is the most important thing that protects us from radiation, from all sorts of stray objects and meteors and asteroids and all these things from hitting our planet. And that it is this ecosystem and it's incredibly blue. It's blue and it's white and then there's bits of green, which is the land. And I think it really made people see that, that it was this living, breathing thing. And then the second thing is that astronauts will tell you when you see it with your own eyes, it has an even bigger effect on them. They all talk about this overview effect. The second they see it, they just get it. They get that Earth is this tiny, fragile ball of life and that everything is protected by this thin film, which is our atmosphere. And that from space, there are no boundaries, there are no regions, there's no countries. This is stuff we've all made up for ourselves. And that the only way that this planet is going to work is that we as humans understand our place in the scheme of that ecosystem, that we are not in charge, that everything that we have is a gift, that we've evolved as a species to live off everything that this planet gives us. And if we don't become part of the natural cycle of that planet, it's not going to work. And so nature's going to fight back. It's a big reason why I want to go to space is so that I can share that viewpoint with as many people as possible, because I think they say if everybody saw it, everybody would understand why we have to take care of our planet. Some astronauts are very smart. They talk about that there is nothing around Earth. No one's going to come anytime soon to save us from ourselves. And that's why I think space has a lot to offer in terms of the wider conversation around taking care of our planet. If our planet is so fragile and so far the only planet we found able to sustain life, what is stopping us from acting like it deserves better care? I got to speak to a psychologist called Sally Weintraub and she is very interested in the guilt that we have around climate change and she feels that the reason why climate change is so difficult for us is because firstly it's too big, it's overwhelming and we have this tremendous sense of guilt around it. And so if we can't tackle that, then we have a problem about communicating climate change. One way science has always helped in is painting a more hopeful view of what our future could look like if we made the changes we need. I think it's really important to look to the future because even though we don't know exactly what might happen, we can certainly plan for a variety of different things that could happen. And also technology that's being invented today, you know, it could have so many different applications in the future. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think the thing about this is governments need to tip the balance towards cleaner technologies to greener applications and deadlines are good. Necessity is the mother of invention. So let's hop to it. And like anything, Julie needs to give me deadlines. Otherwise, things just float off into the distance of they might get done. Julie needs to tell me when it needs to be done for. And I think this is exactly what governments need. Deadlines. Earth as we know it is not going to be the same. You know, like if we don't make a change now, what do we want for our future? What do we want for future generations if we don't start taking responsibility? And it's very easy 
It's just we have to change our priorities. I think most citizens are more than happy to play their part, but I think it's the big organizations and it's the it's the people in charge of where our energy comes from. They have to do the heavy lifting. It's it's changing their opinion. We're actually suffocating our planet right now because of our absolute obsession with fossil fuels. As a species, we're driven far too much by money. Money is a, is a completely man-made concept. And if you detach yourself from it and you start to see the planet and, and our place as creatures on the planet and that we're not in charge, that whole dialogue changes. And if we don't change, we'll become like a parasite. Yeah, line in the sand, stop mucking about, let's get on with it. And there are people getting on with it. Despite many feeling frozen, there are countless others who are working tirelessly to discover solutions. And some of those solutions are already present in the world around us. In a lot of ways, science created some of these problems that we're now in. It created the technologies that have generated so many emissions. It created the airplanes that we all fly in that have caused such changes to our climate and all the other changes that we're now seeing. But science also has the ability to tackle those things. But the real cool part of the world that we live in now, this this big interconnected Gaia, living single entity of the planet that we all live on, it has the ability to fight back to use the systems that it has evolved over millions and millions of years to rebalance the imbalance that we're currently under now. And they're what we call nature-based solutions or more technically ecosystem services. And there's lots of them around, whether it be in the peatlands we have, the forests, even the oceans and the pollinators that fly around our heads all day. They all provide solutions, nature-based solutions to potential changes to our climate. For example, we all know that the Amazon is really important for holding so much carbon in the world, but so are peatlands, and in particular, Irish peatlands. So they hold vast amount of carbon. They're like a massive bath in your bathroom. And that if the tap was dripping into that bath, it would fill extremely slowly, very, very slowly, but it would fill a huge amount of water in there. And compare that to the sink beside your bath, where you can turn on the tap and it will fill up really fast, but it won't be a massive amount of water stored in there. And that's the difference between rainforests and peatlands. So rainforests are like the sink in your bathroom. They fill up really fast with carbon, but they only hold a small amount of it really. They do hold a huge amount, but they fill up really fast and that's it. Whereas the bath is like the peatlands of Ireland and elsewhere. They fill up really slowly with carbon, but when they do fill up, they hold a huge amount of carbon. And that's the really important service that they help us to avoid climate change with. Nature has evolved over millions of years to solve these kinds of problems. So it's nothing new to nature. It knows how to solve it. What we need to do is do the right research as scientists, trust those scientists, and start to tap into the natural knowledge that's already out there, that has evolved over millions of years, and use those solutions to solve the specific problems that unfortunately we've created. New inventions hover into view every day. Sometimes they're just a new toy or another piece of plastic that will soon end up as a part of the problem. Except fidget spinners, they were and will continue to be cool. But alongside the future rubbish are future solutions. Paper thin solar cells that can be stuck onto walls, floating energy generation, natural services, and new ways to remake and reuse technology. And all being developed by thinkers and inventors like the scientists we spoke with today. Thanks to Dr. Shane, Neve Shaw and Phil and Julie for taking part in this episode. All are engaged in projects this Science Week that you can find with a quick search. And Let's Dive In returns to RT Junior Radio Thursdays at 7 or wherever you get your podcasts. We need more scientists, more of us dedicating our creativity to the climate crisis. 
because the answers and the people who find those answers already exist. No matter what age you are, what kind of world do you want? If you want a world that is going to reverse this problem, you're going to have to get familiar with what that means. In order to understand that, to approach it with a scientific mind is a huge advantage. And science teaches you to identify a problem, to figure out the solutions and to test hypotheses. Could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be this? So it gives you a system upon which to figure out what is a good solution. And so if you can do that, if you can teach yourself that way of understanding information, you will be able to have a say in the future direction of your life and this planet. So the more engaged you are in science, the better chance we have to create a better future for you. Egolution was produced by Nikki Coughlin and presented by me, Evie Kenny. This is our party!